right, hey, how's everybody doing this morning? Good. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter four. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter four this morning. I uh, hope your Christmas did go well. Hope you had a good time. Um, we've had a pretty exciting, pretty sleepless night uh, of Christmas at my house. Uh, my wife, Katie, she uh, gave birth to our fourth baby girl three weeks ago. Yeah, there's uh, baby Hannah. It was baby Hannah's first Christmas with us, and um, it was, uh, there's a little picture of her right there. I just wanna say really quick before I begin, um, we have felt so cared for by you all as our church family these past few weeks. Thank you so, so much. Uh, we are so grateful for you. Um, you are our church family, and we love you guys more than you know, and are grateful for you more than you know. I wanna pray, um, I'm gonna pray for you, but also I'm gonna pray for our time in the word today, and then uh, we'll get after it in Matthew chapter four. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the gift of your word, but also thank you for the, the gift of your church. Lord, you are the giver of good gifts, and, and we're amazed at how your, your goodness just runs after us as we just sang. Thank you so much. Lord, your people do not need to hear from a young man today. They need to hear from an eternal God. And so, Lord, I ask that your word would be made clear. It would be made known. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is Matthew chapter four, starting in verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. All right, it's New Year's Eve. It's as good as time as any to talk about the devil. So, a little Satanology for you this Sunday morning. What I just wanna point out before we go further into this text is the reality of Satan here. Because according to a recent Barna poll, 60% of self-described Christians believe that Satan is not a living being and just a symbol for evil. Six out of 10 self-described Christians do not believe that Satan, the devil, is real. And look, in our modern era, I know that a lot of people think that it's naive or archaic to believe in Satan. Like, seriously, bro, with the horns and the pitchfork and the red spandex, like, are you kidding me right now? And no, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. But I do wanna be clear that when I'm talking about Satan, I am talking about a very real supernatural being who is actively working in the world for evil and destruction. So the date was Tuesday, June 6th, 1944. 6,939 ships carrying over 156,000 troops rapidly approached a little strip of beach called Normandy in northern France for the largest military invasion in modern history, what we now know as D-Day. Over 2,500 Allied troops died that day. And even when I say the name of that place, Normandy, it's like it's seared into our mind of, of what those men did that day. If you've seen movies like Saving Private Ryan, um, you get an idea of what that terrible morning might have looked like. Movies like that and, and powerful images like you see on the screen, they, they, they definitely remind us 
to be grateful for the sacrifice that men and women have given for the cause of freedom. But I bring up D-Day to make this point. The men who approached Normandy that day had no delusions about what was going to happen when they set foot on that beach. None of them thought they were going to a French beach for a vacation and to get a nice tan. Before they landed on that beach, they may not have seen their enemy yet. They may have had no idea what their enemy looked like, but what they did know is that they were heading straight into an onslaught of an enemy who wanted nothing more than to destroy them. And I tell you that this morning to remind you that we are in the midst of a real battle with a real enemy who is far more dangerous than we could ever imagine. And until we start to wake up to that reality, many of us in here are going to be casualties of this battle and not even know why, because it's like we're showing up to D-Day with a beach towel and a Mai Tai. For what it's worth, Satan couldn't care less if you believed in him or not. That's because he's not in it so much for your recognition as he is for your destruction. And listen, I'm not the guy who says that there's a demon behind every rock. And I remember my screw tape letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to have an unhealthy and excessive interest in them. But I'll just say this. Jesus didn't think it was naive to believe in Satan. Neither did Paul or Peter or any other New Testament writer. Satan is mentioned over 250 times in the New Testament, and that computes to almost once every single chapter. And I'll take it a step further. I think it's naive actually not to believe in Satan. I mean, when you look at the evil that's in this world, there has got to be something more than just evolutionary chemicals and survival of the fittest at work. If you think all that was behind the Holocaust was Hitler, I think that's naive. If you think all that was behind slavery was racism and horrible economics, I think that's naive. If you think that's all that's behind your problems with lust is just some self-control issues, I think that's naive. Because we have an enemy who wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy you, your family, and everything you know. That's the reality that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. Satan is a very real, supernatural enemy who is actively working in the world for evil and destruction. However, and this is an ultimate cosmic however, scratch the turntables, pump the brakes, full stop. However, he is a defeated enemy. Jesus defeated him on the cross, and even though it is true that we will battle with him, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Even though that is true, it's just skirmishes, because there's a day coming when Jesus is coming back and it's gonna finish him off for good. And because of that, because Jesus resisted and overcame Satan, he now gives us the power to resist and overcome Satan. So this morning, this is battle prep. 
This is battle prep uh, for the new year. Uh, we're gonna remember our son Zoo. Remember some art of war? Miles knows what I'm talking about. A little, a little art of war. If you, if you know your enemy and know yourself, you need not fear 100 battles. So this morning, that's the plan. Know your enemy, know yourself. And you need not fear 100 battles. What we're gonna look at in this text is the primary strategy that our enemy uses against us and then we're gonna see the strategy that Jesus gives us for how we can actually resist and overcome him. All right, let's get after it in verse two. This is Matthew four, starting in verse two. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, shocker. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just this way, but I, I get this image of angels coming in like X-wing fighters you know, at the end of uh, Star Wars episode four and Satan's like Darth Vader just going off into space like, ah, um, but Satan's gonna come back. Um, he came back to Jesus and he'll come back to you. Uh, the empire would surely strike back and so will Satan. And so we look back at this text with me. Um, I want you to see how Satan attacks Jesus because it's the same primary strategy that he uses to attack us today. So look back at verse three. Tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God. Now Satan says the same thing in verse six if you are the son of God. Why does Satan say that twice? If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. Well, because it's a coordinated attack based on what just happened in Jesus's life. Uh, look back at verse one here. If you underline stuff in your Bible, I, I'd underline the word then. That little conjunction may only be four letters, but it's extremely important in understanding this passage here. In fact, it's probably the key to understanding this entire text. That word then is what commentators call a temporal conjunction. Well, what it does is it tells us that what happens in chapter four directly flows out of what already happened in chapters one through three. So what, what just happened in Jesus' life? He's baptized. And literally the, the last verse of chapter three, God the Father says to Jesus as he's coming up out of the water, he says this, Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So basically what happened is that God said to Jesus in front of a lot of people, you are the son of God. So, so when you take that background into account, embedded in these first two temptations is what? It's doubt. Satan was trying to get Jesus to doubt what God said about him at his baptism. What, what Satan was implying here is, all right, if you're really the son of God, what are you doing out here in the wilderness all alone? Sh shouldn't you be able to feed yourself? 
or, or have some angels catch you if you fall. See, what Satan is trying to do is get Jesus to question the identity that God had given to him and look to other forms of acceptance, significance, and security. Now, look at the the third temptation. Watch what Satan does. It's subtle, but see what he does here in verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, what's Satan doing here? He's offering Jesus the rule of the world. And we're like, what? Because isn't Jesus already destined to rule the world? Well, yeah. Here's what Satan's doing. He's offering Jesus all of it without having to go through the cross. He's offering power and glory minus the one thing that Jesus came to this earth to do, to die on a cross. He's trying to take away the necessity of the cross. So so if you put it all together, here's the essence of the temptations. One, Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt the acceptance, significance, and security that God has already given to him at his baptism. And two, he's trying to take away the necessity of the cross. And hear me on this. This is the exact same way that Satan will come at you. Satan's A game is to get you to doubt the acceptance, security, and significance that God has given to you as a believer through the finished work of Christ. I'll say that again. Satan's primary strategy is to get you to doubt the acceptance, security, and significance that God has given to you as a believer through the finished work of Jesus. See, a lot of times I I feel like People think that Satan's primary tactic is, is weird stuff. Stuff like making people foam with the mouth or, or levitate, like, like weird Hollywood stuff. And I'm not putting that past them. But I'll say this, I'll just be blunt. Satan wasn't out there in the wilderness with Jesus levitating chickens. That's not what was happening here. Because Satan's primary strategy in your life is attacking the identity that God has given to you as a believer through the cross. That is the primary way Satan will tempt you and it's the root of all your temptations. So again, know your enemy, know yourself, need not fear 100 battles, that's your enemy. That's his primary strategy against you. Now, we're gonna talk about you. I'm gonna give you uh, two ways from the text for how we can actually resist and overcome temptation. One is that like Jesus, we look outside to God's word and not inside to ourselves. We look outside to God's word and not inside to ourselves. What we see here in this text is something very specific that Jesus is, is showing us to do when Satan takes a run at us. It's something very specific that undergirds every single verse that he quotes. Remember, before every temptation, Satan says, if you are the son of God. And every verse that Jesus quotes is a verse that anchors him to the external reality of what God has already said about him at his baptism. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. 
So, so if you look back in verse four, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You read that as, yeah, my hope is not in my stuff, it's in God. I believe what my father has said about me. Look at verse seven. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Read that as, uh, no thank you, I'm secure in my relationship with God. I trust in my father. Third one, he says this in verse 10. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I'm not in this for me. I know what I came to this earth to do and it ain't worshiping you. Be gone. I'm loyal to my father. What's, what's Jesus doing? He's looking to what he knows is true from what God has said. Not only in what God had said is baptism, but also to what God has already said in scripture. He keeps coming back to the external reality of God's word for his acceptance, his significance, his security. That's the way. That's the pattern that Jesus gives. But in today's culture, when we're feeling unsure, insignificant, or insecure, the dominant narrative of our culture is to do what? Look inside, follow your heart, find your truth. Now, I wanna be careful here because this is nuanced. We've, we've gotta remember our Calvin here. Calvin said the, the very first line of institutes, this is wisdom, to know God and know yourself. God has made you in his image with dignity, value, and worth, with tendencies, abilities, and gifts that he wants you to discover and explore. Absolutely, that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is the dominant narrative of our cultural moment that you find ultimate acceptance, significance, and security for yourself by looking inside yourself. You don't go outside of you, you go inside of you. You base it on your feelings, your deepest dreams, and your own desires, and we see this everywhere. See in the movies that we watch, it's in the music that we listen to. It's the rhetoric on social media. Find yourself by looking inside yourself. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but it's a satanic lie. Because the problem with, with trying to find acceptance, significance, and security by looking inside yourself, it's gonna leave you frustrated. It just won't work. It's being sold to us as what we should do, but it's, it, it's snake oil. It, it doesn't work. Keller talks about this in, in, in Making Sense of God. He, he gives a bunch of reasons as to why looking inside yourself for your acceptance, significance, and security, looking inside yourself is actually toxic and destructive. I'm, I'm gonna give you two of them, and I think this is helpful, especially in diagnosing our own cultural moment. One, he says that looking inside yourself is an unstable way to live. It's unstable. It's gonna be unstable because at the deepest parts of who you are, you have these conflicting desires over the course of your life. So, so if I could explain it like this. Um, when I look back five years ago at 30-year-old David, I can see that in a lot of ways, a lot of objective ways, I was a moron. Now, when I was 30, and I was looking back when I was 20, I, I couldn't believe that I'm still alive. 
I can't believe that 20-year-old me was allowed to do anything in society, honestly. Now, like every single 20-year-old, I thought that I had everything put together. I thought I had it all figured out, but oh, the sweet mercy of God to actually bring me through to bounds. Now, I'm 35, and I feel like I've been through some, some significant life events. I feel like I got a good head on my shoulders. And yet, here's what I'm convinced of, that when I get to 45, Lord willing, I'm gonna look back when I was at 35 and think that that was silly and naive. My guess is that when I'm at 55, I'm gonna have some issues with 45-year-old me, and so on, right? At what point do we stop trusting these feelings inside of us because they're so fleeting? because they change so much over the course of our lives. At what point do we say, this is an unstable way to live? It's stable. Second thing that he says is that uh, if you look inside yourself to find yourself, look inside of yourself for your acceptance, significance, and security, it's gonna crush you. And the reason that it's gonna crush you is because when there's no God, no Bible, no church, it's just you looking inside of you to find acceptance, significance, and security. All the weight of finding that lands on you. And when the weight, the pressure of that lands on us, we will, by nature, take things that are good, turn them into idols that end up crushing us. So, so here's kind of how that works. Let me, let me talk about relationships. If I need my wife to be the ultimate source of my acceptance, security, and my significance, if, if I need her to complete me, as it were, then I am asking her to be for me what she cannot be. That is to put an incredible weight on her that will crush her and it will crush me. Now, she's my lobster. She's my person. But if I'm chasing her around saying, I need you to validate me, I need you to complete me, my wife's her own woman. She's not gonna have any bit of that. She's gonna go on in the marriage. She's gonna crush. How about this one? You're single, you're alone, you're not getting your emotional needs met. And so what'll happen is that you're feeling like you're in this sea of singleness, you're, you're drowning in a sea of loneliness. And here comes this six foot four, good looking life preserver. So what do you do? You grab a hold of that thing, or guys, you hold on to that girl for dear life, and you don't have to watch an episode of The Bachelor to know that you're both gonna sink. See this all the time on social media. We, we see, if you're in, in my life stage, if you're kind of in the stage that, that I'm at, uh, what you'll do is you'll start swiping through social media and you'll see someone who you perceive is parenting better than you are. So you're scrolling through Instagram, wow. Can't believe she cooked that for her family for dinner. Their kids look so more, better behaved than mine. They went on that vacation. That's what a real mom does. That's what a real dad does. 
And don't look now, but you have tied your acceptance, significance, and security to a screen. And that will crush you. That's why Jesus is showing us here that we don't look inside ourselves to find ourselves. It's unstable. It will crush you. And it's the slick, subtle, satanic siren song of our culture that will take our focus off the acceptance, significance, and security that God has given to us as believers through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And a lot of times, we don't even know it's happening. And to kind of bring back our our D-Day illustration, it's like we're showing up to Normandy on June 6, 1944 with no idea that there is an enemy holed up in concrete bunkers with machine guns trained right at you. That's why we look outward. That's why we look outside of ourselves to God's word for our identity. Not because we wanna be different. Not because we wanna do some cultural zag but because it's the way to freedom and joy. Second thing we see in this text, we look to Jesus' finished work on the cross and, and not our own effort. See, Jesus' finished work, his, his death and his resurrection, uh, that is the acceptance, significance, and security that God has given to us as believers. Remember we said that little word then in verse one is extremely important. It's important because it connects what happens in Matthew chapter four to what already happened in Matthew chapter one through three. See, the first few chapters in the book of Matthew are some of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. Right out of the gates, you've got the birth of Jesus, you've got the baptism of Jesus, temptation of Jesus, and the Sermon on the Mount, right out of the gates. But if you take back from a 30,000 foot view, Something has been happening in these first few chapters. It's very important. It's it's very unique. In the first few chapters of the book of Matthew, Jesus is actually retracing the steps of ancient Israel. In Matthew 1 through 2, like Israel, Jesus fled to Egypt to escape a disaster and then left Egypt. Matthew 3, like Israel, Jesus went through the water. Matthew 4, like Israel, Jesus goes into the wilderness. He wanders for 40 days, just like Israel wandered for 40 years. While he's there, he goes through basically the same three tests that Israel went through, except unlike Israel, Jesus passes them perfectly. Matthew 5, like Israel, Jesus will go up the mountain to give the law of God, but unlike Israel, Jesus is gonna keep it perfectly. See, the whole point of these first few chapters in in Matthew is that Jesus is taking Israel's place. He's walking the steps that they had walked, but he's living the life that they should have lived. Matthew one through five, it's all about substitution. It's all hinting at substitution. It's all hinting at what Martin Luther called the happy exchange. Happy exchange is that Jesus not only lived the life we were supposed to live, but he also took our busted up broken life, he died for it, and now he gives us his perfect life in return. This is what separates the gospel from every other religion. Every other religion teaches you something you must do to please God. Go here, do this, say this, don't do this. But the gospel, the gospel is not good advice for what you should do to earn God's favor. The gospel is good news that Jesus has already done everything for you to earn God's favor. 
Every other religion, the prophet is a teacher that teaches you what you must do to earn God's favor. But in the gospel, Jesus is a savior who does for you what you cannot do and then gives it as a gift of new life. When I was a senior in high school, I was taking this AP English class. It was one of those classes that had just a ton of reading and a ton of writing. And I, I went to my teacher um, one day, and who was named Mrs. Crump. Very cool lady, by the way, Mrs. Crump. I said, Mrs. Crump, I, I, I gotta drop this class. I just, I can't keep up with the reading. It's just, it's just too much. And so she, she asked me, well, do you like the books that we're, we're reading? And I said, yeah, I, I really like them a lot, actually. I just, I can't keep up with all the reading. I mean, I, it's gonna wreck my GPA. I wanna I want get in this college, and so I've gotta drop the class and get into a, a lighter class. And so she said, well, I, I really want you in my class. Would it make a difference if I told you that I was gonna give you an A for your final grade? Would, would that make you wanna stay in my class? Well, yeah. And she's like, okay. Well, I'll, I'll take my grade book right now. Final grade, A, no matter what. I'm like, are you serious? She's like, absolutely, I'm serious. Run along, enjoy the book. And you know what? I did enjoy that book. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, where was that English teacher when I was in high school? <laughs> the amazing thing about Jesus' finished work on the cross is that as far as God is concerned, if you are a Christian, you have already received an A. You are not being graded by your failures. You're being graded by Jesus' perfect, finished work on the cross. Now you can just enjoy. Now you can be free. Like, do you know what would happen if you actually believe this? Like, not, not just in your head, but in your heart. You, you actually believe this. This would change everything about you. You'd be free. It's gonna be personal, but I, I've, I've gotta get you to relate to this. I, I gotta let you know, I, I'm not just standing up here talking at you. I mean, I, I am preaching this to myself as much as I am preaching to you. I love going back to my hometown. Love it. I really enjoy bringing my kids back there because I get to show them all the places you know, that I grew up, all the, all the places that I, I used to go to. I, we'd, so we start going down you know, Highway 20. I'm like, hey guys, there's, there's Turkey Creek where we used to swim. There's Danny's fried chicken. I've had fried chicken on four different continents. And next to my mom's, that is the best fried chicken on the face of the earth. That's where the old Kmart used to be. There's my high school. And at that moment, it happens every single time. At that moment, what's gonna happen is I'm gonna be flooded with memories. Some of them really good, but some of them that have haunted me for years. I'll think of that one time in the gym there was this kid who was playing this card game on the floor. And an insecure idiot me who wanted to impress two girls made fun of him in front of a lot of people. It's just a bully, like, like something you would be horrified to see in a movie. 
keep going down the road a little bit. Oh, there's that house. You remember what happened there? Not exactly something you want your congregation to know, eh, preacher man? And what's gonna happen is that these memories are gonna start coming back in the form of accusations and shame. And you know what the, the really insidious thing about when Satan levels an accusation at you? The really insidious thing is that he's usually not wrong. He, he's usually right. You remember the old song? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, is Satan wrong that there's guilt within? No, he's right. There is guilt within. I am unequivocally guilty. So, so what do I do? Do I say, no, Satan, I'm, I'm actually a, I'm a good person. I, I've been to church a lot lately. I've been nice to my wife, been nice to my kids. I've, I've read the Bible a lot lately. No, no, upward I look and see him there. I see Jesus there. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why we don't look to our own effort. That's why we don't look inside. That's why we look outside. That's why we look outside to Jesus' finished work on the cross because when you do, it will change everything about you. You'll be free. It's New Year's Eve and so what we're gonna do is um, we're, we're gonna step out in faith here. We're, we're gonna create some space um, for you to respond. Judd and the team are gonna come up here um, and, and we're gonna have a time where if you need prayer, we, we wanna pray with you. Because I know that you have those places and you have those moments in your life that haunt you too. That when you think about them from time to time, they bring out these oppressive accusations, these oppressive feelings of shame. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's something that was done to you. But somebody in here, when we talk about voices of accusation and shame that are on repeat, somebody in here today said, yeah, that's me. I know exactly what you're talking about. Stuff my daddy said, stuff my mom said, an ex-spouse, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, voices of accusation. If that's you, we wanna pray for you. If you wrestle with oppressive accusations and shame, when we begin singing, would you slip out and would you just meet us down here? We, we wanna pray for you. We wanna pray for freedom. If you wrestle with voices of accusation, voices of shame, voices over, over, over again, they may manifest themselves differently. Voices over stuff you've done in your past mistakes you've made, or maybe it wasn't anything that you did, but it was something that somebody said to you and something was deposited in your spirit. We wanted you to come down here. We wanna pray for you. Tomorrow's the new year. We're going out on a limb here. 
we invite you to meet us there. If you wrestle with voices of accusation and shame, I want you to slip out when we start singing and we start. We want to pray for you. Let's stand and let's sing together.